Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast where the hosts are in a combined total of $250,000 of debt. Today we have Lindsay, Laura, and Hope. Today we are going to talk about debt. And since we have a full panel of guests with us, we're going to jump right into that discussion. So thanks, everybody, for being here today. Um, why don't each of you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your expertise or your experience in the area of debt reform? Sure, sure. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Ann Larson. I'm really excited to be here. I've been organizing around debt since 2011, around the Occupy Wall Street movement. I'm currently co-founder of the Debt Collective. We are a membership organization for people in debt, and what we do is we're bringing labor organizing tactics, such as slowdowns and strikes, um, into the space of finance and credit. That's um, so cool. Yeah, in 2015, we got started with, uh, we launched the first student debt strike in U.S. history with former for-profit college students, and uh, ultimately won more than $600 million in debt relief. For those folks, that's awesome. It was a grassroots campaign. Yeah, really exciting and taught us a lot of that, you know, debt strikes are definitely uh, the wave of the future. Our organization offers services to individuals and we're continuing to organize around debt and demanding positive changes like free public college, which everyone here I know supports already. So yay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing that. I'm just like nodding and smiling really big because that's Incredible work. Thank you. <laughs> Emma, how about, I know you've been here before, but why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, my name is Emma. Longtime listeners will remember me from the law episode where I talked about why the law is sexist, and now I'm going to talk about why consumer finance is sexist. Wow. Uh, so excited to be back on talking about more depressing stuff. I'm glad um, to have you. <laughs> so I am officially done with law school. Yes. Uh, doing work. Thank you. We'll be doing work as an attorney starting in August, helping people who've been mistreated by predatory debt collectors or had their financial privacy mismanaged. Uh, my views on this podcast don't in any way represent the firm. And I also write a lot about consumerism and debt and other fun issues. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming back. Eve, how about you? Yeah. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Eve Weissman. I am a staff attorney at New Economy Project. We're an economic justice organization based in New York City, and we want to build a new economy an economy that works for all people based on principles of cooperation, racial justice, and ecological sustainability. And we fight against abusive and predatory financial practices by banks and other corporations that systematically strip wealth from low-income communities and communities of color. And we work with coalitions to build new institutions premised on local, democratic, and cooperative ownership and control. And I um, am a staff attorney at the organization, so I help staff a financial justice hotline for low-income New York City residents. We also provide free legal assistance on a range of different financial justice issues. 
we bring impact litigation, we do policy work, and we work uh, in coalition with partners to advance our goals. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. That's really excellent work. And I'm so glad that you're all here with us today. Thank you. I guess we should go ahead and jump right into the bulk of the episode. So part one today, we're going to be talking about the basics of debt and debt as a women's issue. So Anne, I know this is a you know pretty big ask, but would you mind giving us a brief overview of debt as a concept and its role in modern capitalism? Sure, I'll give it a shot. We're all in debt. That's a fact. 77% of U.S. households are in debt. And get this, one in seven of us is being pursued by a debt collector. That's a pretty shocking statistic. Um, and more and more, you know, there's like mythology that we're in debt for luxuries and like fast cars and fur coats. And that's just not true. Most mm-hmm. of us are in debt for basic needs, things we need to survive, like, like health care and education. Perfect example of this is the $1.5 trillion in student debt that we're all currently paying or not, as the case may be. Um, and also in the realm of healthcare, two thirds of bankruptcies are linked to medical debt. Um, so people are going into bankruptcy because they can't afford to get sick. And we should really be thinking of this as a form of, of economic violence. There's really mm-hmm. no other way to describe it. Why is this happening? It's, we, have to, we have to really understand the political economy. It won't be news to anybody who listens to this show, but capitalism isn't working. Um, I mean, I guess it works for a few people, you know, if you, if it works, if it's working for you, then you know who you are. But for most of us, it isn't working. Um, I have no idea money what you're piece- talking about. <laughs> totally. If it works for you, you're not listening to this podcast. You're not listening to the show. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> money and resources are being concentrated into fewer and fewer hands, resulting in the rise of the infamous 1% that we've all heard about. But I think what I want to offer is to understand mass indebtedness, we should really add another framing, you know, just thinking more about the economy and and how it's evolved. The last few decades have also seen a transition from industrial capitalism to what we call finance capitalism. And this is where investors and financiers are trying to make money less on the process of making things, although there's still plenty of that, and more on making money via investments and financial products. So long story short, this is how you get the subprime mortgage crisis that we had a few years ago, uh, where investors are basically betting on how the market will do and profiting or not from that. And if they lose, the investors get bailed out and homeowners take the hit. We know this. This is what we, we already saw this go down. So in this age of finance, our capacity to go into debt uh, is really becoming almost as important as our labor in, in creating opportunities for, mm-hmm. for the creditor class, for the investor class to, to make money on, off of us. And this is the, the sort of period that we're in. The response of elites in America, elected officials, policymakers, the ruling class, you might say, is, is, is austerity, right? We're, we're all in debt. And so we have to cut the budget. We have to stop public spending. And this is what we've been seeing over the last few years. It's really very clear. The federal government and the states are cutting budgets and disinvesting in social goods like education and healthcare. In fact, I'm sure folks saw just in the last few weeks, we've seen the Trump administration pursuing even more cuts to the social safety net. They've recently started uh, trying to cut SNAP, the SNAP program. This benefits 42 million low-income folks. I was just reading today, the New York Times actually called the plan, the Trump administration plan, a dismantling of the American social welfare system from the inside out. This is a serious situation that's occurring right now. At the same time that this dismantling is happening, uh, we've seen a response from elected officials that is 
really very disturbing. Um, both parties have been very interested in cutting taxes for the rich and corporations. This is all happening in the name of cutting spending. We just had a massive tax break for the wealthy in the last few months. Um, mm -hmm. And this is, this is just adding insult to injury. On top of cutting the social safety net, they are giving more breaks to millionaires and billionaires. So importantly, for the theme of this show, what, what is one result of all of this is it just forces people to go into debt to access things that they need. Our wages have been stagnant for four decades. We have not really seen a rise in wages. And so we have to go into debt to pay the light, to keep the lights on, to pay for health care, to pay for education. And if we don't pay back our debt, our credit rating takes a hit, which means we can't borrow what we need, even though now borrowing has become a means for survival. So this is really a desperate cycle. And it's really important also to note before I wrap up that these practices are all incredibly racist. Mm -hmm. What I've just described does not affect everyone in society in the same way. Some folks bear the brunt. I think one example is to look at the Department of Justice issued a report on what, what happened in Ferguson a couple of years ago. 40% uh, of Ferguson city budget was being financed by fines and fees by putting people into debt every time they interacted with the court system or were arrested. And so this is not an isolated case. It is clear individual indebtedness um, is directly related to a political economy where we've stopped funding public goods and we've basically started extracting those funds from those that are the least able to pay. And in America, that's people of color, poor folks. And that's where we are. Sorry, it's kind of depressing, guys. But, you know. No, sorry. <laughs> I hope that was a, a good background. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. I don't know. I keep thinking about this scene in a TV show and I can't remember what show it is, but it's like these people in this company and this one is explaining to the, this one character is explaining to the other, like the basics of the business and the other characters like, but, but what do you make? And the other character says money. <laughs> and the first one says, but, what do you create? And the other one goes, wealth. Mm. And it's, uh, I don't know. I just think about that scene all the time. And I feel like it's from yeah. It's Always Sunny, but it might not be. Either way, it's um, it's a useless industry. And I'm mad about it <laughs> all the time. Exactly. Uh, so, Eve, I think you wanted to talk about the debt buyer industry. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I'll just say, and this is just one piece, albeit a pernicious and really problematic piece of this whole context that Anne just laid out for us. But debt, the debt buying industry, these are basically companies that engage in fraudulent and deceptive practices that, like the Wall Street banks, are siphoning billions of dollars from low-income neighborhoods and from communities of color. And these companies, they basically buy up debt for pennies on the dollar, and usually with very little or often no real documentation about what is actually owed or was owed. And then they engage in these aggressive tactics to collect on this debt. And one of their primary tactics is using the courts to bring lawsuits. And so the courts have actually become this primary way in which these companies are siphoning off this money from low-income communities. And we hear constantly on our hotline from people who find out, for example, years later that a lawsuit was brought against them, a debt collection lawsuit, and they only find this out because their bank account is frozen or their wages are being garnished, and they're experiencing this collection activity on judgments that were obtained years ago, often 
uh, without adequate documentation and the legally required proof to obtain the judgment in the first place. And then people have to take time off work, go into court to fight to undo these judgments, of course, losing more income and incurring additional expenses, not to mention the incredible, you know, emotional and psychological toll that this takes on folks to have to go and defend these lawsuits or go back to court after the fact and try to undo these judgments, oftentimes having no idea what the underlying debt is that they're even being sued on in the first place. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, I'm, and I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's like horrifying and there's, yeah. I, it's, yeah, I don't know what else to say to that. It's just ridiculous that that's how it works. And people, I don't know, companies make their living off of wrecking people's lives. Ah, and the legal system supports it. Okay, speaking of the legal system, Emma, (laughs) you wrote an article in which you discuss debt as an issue that disproportionately affects women. Uh, Could you elaborate on this a little bit? Yes. So I wrote an article called uh, Fresh Start for a Women's Economy Beyond Punitive Consumer Bankruptcy, which will be out in this summer's edition of the Berkeley Journal of Gender, Law, and Justice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And so basically, I build on the work of other scholars like Elizabeth Warren, uh, but rather than uh, focusing on bankruptcy and debt's disproportionate impact on women, since they've already done a pretty good job of establishing that, I'm more curious about the cultural and legal origins of the disparity and how our sort of patriarchal capitalist culture and patriarchal capitalist legal system interact with one another. So just to give a couple of examples, one of the things I talk about is Pinterest. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, not from a point of personal judgment, because I'm a very active Pinterest user. Um, (laughs) Too active, probably. Um, And one of the things I talk about is that Pinterest is kind of this height of consumerist culture, uh, which is referred to in business jargon as aspirational consumerism. Mm -hmm. And essentially, it gives people the highs that they get, you know, from like, uh, what you would call like retail therapy, that sort of stuff. But like, the reality of it is, is that they don't even own these things, right? We don't even like, we're no longer even owning these things. We just have these little digital symbols of them. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one of the examples of a legal sort of thing I talk about is this incredible case where a woman is filing for bankruptcy and she's essentially denied what's called Chapter 7 bankruptcy, which we'll talk about more later. Uh, She's denied it by this judge because he makes all these judgments about her lifestyle. And one of those that he remarks on is that she had gained weight over the past couple of years. That's I don't disgusting. know how he found that out, if that was just like him guessing at it, but it's pretty awful. Oh my God. That is so upsetting. Like this is just, it gets much more upsetting as we go along. Like every single layer of it is one more horrific thing. <laughs> so would anybody like to talk about the moralization of debt? Personally, I think it's immoral to charge people more via interest because they need things they can't immediately afford, but I'm definitely contradicting the, do- the dominant cultural narrative on this point. Mm-hmm. 
I can I can start. So the legal history of this is really interesting, at least to me. <laughs> and there's been this theory that has periodically come up in the sort of academic literature called improvident extension of credit. Uh, and it basically shifts the blame of people not being able to pay their debts onto financial companies who didn't properly access the risk of the loan or, or credit transaction, essentially, you know, going after people like payday lenders who mm-hmm. make loans knowing full well that the people won't be able to pay it back. And I believe it. this theory under the common law has won a case a grand total of once, um, which was in some random court in Ohio. Um, but it has had a lot of influence in other ways, like with the CFPB's mortgage rules. But uh, speaking from personal experience, I tried to bring this up once in court, uh, and it was horrifying, the judge's reaction. Uh, to this day, it's the angriest a judge has ever gotten at me, all just for suggesting that maybe this debtor is not totally morally culpable for their debt when their credit card company gave them another credit card, even though they had defaulted on the previous one. So, wow. <laughs> one, one thing I've heard, just another example I've heard from a lot of other attorneys and, and other advocates is judges making assumptions based on their client's appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, and one example in particular is like their nails. Like if they have a manicure, the judge will be like, oh, well, they must be spending their money frivolously. Mm-hmm. And, and it really just shows like how this moralization is so detached from like mm-hmm. the actual experience of being poor or being working class. I mean, it, it like costs nine bucks to get a manicure in my neighborhood. It's not like that's going to make it all the difference in the world if you're $3,000 in debt. And you can see it's a very gendered connotation to it. This idea mm-hmm. of women being these shopaholics who incur debt based on frivolous, vain expenses. But the data shows that this isn't, as Anne had mentioned earlier, this isn't the case at all. Most consumer debt is caught up in mortgages and student loans. And both of these things are stuff that people do to invest in their futures rather than like living it up for the moment in some kind of, you know, typical millennial, I don't know, shopping spree. Yeah, this is Eve. I'll just add that, you know, the people calling our financial justice hotline who are in debt, they incurred that debt to purchase basic necessities, as Anne and Emma have said, oftentimes even healthcare expenses. I mean, there are these credit cards that people are essentially sometimes taking out, sometimes even without really understanding that they're taking out this credit card type thing at their healthcare provider, their dentist, chiropractor, sometimes even for healthcare costs associated with pets. But anyway, mm-hmm. people people are in debt not because, and people are poor, not because of bad financial decisions or lack of financial planning. And we often hear that as around some of the rhetoric of like how to address these issues instead of looking at the fact that people are struggling to get by because wages have stagnated while the cost of living, especially the cost of housing, especially places like here in New York City, has just skyrocketed. And wages haven't kept pace. Public assistance and other benefits are 
nowhere near enough for people to actually live on. And the narrative that, you know, bad choices leads people into debt, it just ignores the fact that the economic system we all live under is actually set up to produce these very outcomes. Mm -hmm. And um, it's further exacerbated by the fact that low-income folks and people who are struggling the most to get by in our economy are also the people who are then excluded from the mainstream financial services system and forced to use fringe financial services and products like check cashers and prepaid cards. And these are the very products that carry the highest interest rates and the worst fees and just perpetuate this cycle of poverty and inequality. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I just want to uplift like even more like thinking about the morality of this, like these systems are in place to create very specific profit through very specific systems. I think one of the main reasons why healthcare for all is such a battle in the United States is because of a lot of these profiteers that have so much to gain from healthcare debt, not even to mention just like the profits from the healthcare industry and insurance itself, but from the fact that no reasonable human based on our current economic system can withstand any sort of health emergency that they might experience. I lived in Ithaca for a long time and I worked at the soup kitchen there and many of the people who would come to our soup kitchen were people with masters and PhDs from Cornell and couldn't afford food and and were often homeless due to a healthcare emergency. And so when we think about morality, for me it's like a no-brainer that it's completely immoral to be like putting people in this position where they have to choose or get themselves into these like insanely difficult situations based on a completely corrupt economic system that is stealing from them every step of the way. Oh yeah, totally. Oh, <laughs> all right. I think this is, I mean, unless we go off on other tangents, I think this is the last like big topic we're going to cover in the really heavy half of the episode. Does anyone have any information on payday lending and title loans I'd like to share? Um, I know that they're much more frequently portrayed as unethical and predatory than most other types of lending schemes, which I think must mean that they're really bad. Yeah, I'm happy to kick us off. This is Eve again. These are another example of these parasitic companies that intentionally trap people in debt in order to extract profit. I think it's important to note that payday lending is actually illegal in New York. Thankfully, we're one of the 15 states across the country, plus the District of Columbia, that actually bans payday loans. What these are, these are small dollar loans with extremely high interest rates, often as high as 400% or even higher. And (sighs) they're designed um, to trap people in these long-term debt cycles. They're called payday loans because they become due at the borrower's next paycheck. And, you know, if you think about it, if you have an income shortfall and you need a few hundred dollars to get by one month, what is the likelihood that you'll actually be able to repay that money the next month and still pay all your other bills? It's not high. So people frequently end up taking out repeated payday loans in states where they're allowed and owing much more than the original amount. And, you know, as we've been saying all along here, the research consistently shows that communities of color are disproportionately targeted 
um, mm-hmm. for these debt traps. And this is just, you know, again, an entire industry that's premised on taking advantage of people who are struggling to make it pay te- paycheck to paycheck. And the industry argues constantly that, you know, this is about addressing this unmet financial need. People need access to credit when in reality, it's just exacerbating wealth inequality and doing absolutely nothing to address the root causes of poverty. And Mm -hmm. I just want to mention here that in coalition with community and labor and faith-based groups all across the state, our organization has been putting forth a New York State community equity agenda, which is really aiming to build community wealth and hold banks accountable and end predatory lending in New- or attempts to bring predatory lending into New York once and for all. Um, because every year the check cashing industry and others try to dismantle our state's strong usury laws, which is what is preventing payday lending from being legal in the state. And organizations end up expending tons of resources trying to fight against these terrible practices and keep them out of our state year after year. So we need to go on the offensive and um, hopefully stop playing defense on this issue in New York. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I just wanted to chime in from, like, to talk a little bit about the Trump Trump administration and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, because, you know, people always talk about how, like, ooh, like, Trump was the candidate of the anxious white working class or something like that. Mm -hmm. And really, Trump's base... I always say the Trump space was cops and payday lenders. And they were <laughs> so even true. payday lending CEOs standing behind him at the inauguration. I mean, it's this sort of like, you know, like bottom dweller, like scum sucking, like part of the economy that's behind his administration because they're the ones who benefit the most from sort of broad deregulation and the way that they're getting that done right now is by tearing apart the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau from within. And there was uh, recently a case decided in uh, the Southern District of New York, RD Legal, where the CFPB was dismissed from the lawsuit because the judge alleges that the CFPB's uh, structure is not constitutional. And that argument isn't new. Um, it's, it was already an ongoing litigation issue. But she sort of took it to the next level by dismissing the CFPB from the case. And it's, it's kind of the perfect case to point out the hypocrisy of the right wing, because this was literally a case where the CFPB was pursuing a company that had ripped off victims of 9-11, victims who had like the rescue efforts and all that sort of stuff. They were ripping uh, them off from their compensation fund. Um, So yeah, that's that's the sort of the socio-political context of payday lending is they are chummy with all of these right-wing Republicans who pretend that they care about, you know, the American people in the American way, but really they just want to steal everything they can from you um, before, you know, they eventually get caught. 
And the people who are advocating for that have likely never had to actually take out a payday loan. So, okay. Sorry, one more thing. (laughs) No, go for it. (laughs) Uh, Just because, you know, to give one of the feminist angles to this issue is the payday lending industry and and predatory finance also has a lot of connections to evangelical Christianity and particularly Mm. the um, anti-abortion terrorist groups like Operation Rescue. And uh, Mick Mulvaney, current temporary head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, as appointed by Donald Trump, uh, once accused Planned Parenthood of trafficking in pieces of dead children. So is the fucking loony uh, That is the intersection, <laughs> you know, we're dealing with is like Donald Trump payday lenders, anti-abortion terrorists. The congregation. All right. I hate that. I hate every one of them. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Uh, one more horrible thing. I don't think we brought this up. I know, Anne, you mentioned that there's like $1.5 trillion in student debt. And I know that you sent us an article to read before we recorded that said that $900 billion of that is debt held by women, which is absolute garbage. And I believe that the reasoning for that was because women, there are more women in higher education, but also they have to take out higher student loans. And thanks to the wage gap, they wind up making less money to pay back those loans after they graduate. So yeah, student loans are uh, just a shit show for us. True. True. Okay. Well, I guess this is as good a time as any to take a music break. And when we get back, we'll be a little bit more hopeful around here. Woo. Full of hopes. (laughs) (laughs) That was hope.
Welcome back. In this half of the show, we're going to talk about the more hopeful aspect of debt, which is how to get out of it. And of course, I'd like to focus on ways short of like coming into money and suddenly being able to pay it all off. You know, we can all hope for a windfall, but it doesn't usually happen for most of us. So Eve, I know that the New Economy Project on their website, it has a Know Your Rights page that's full of information about people's rights with regard to their debts. Of course, I encourage all of our listeners who are interested in the topic to check it out, but could you give us the gist of it? Absolutely. We have what we hope are very accessible and user-friendly resources on our website addressing a range of things, including you know dealing with debt collection lawsuits, debt collection phone calls and letters one might receive in the mail, dealing with other things that are sort of associated with debt collection, like having your bank account frozen or your wages garnished, and much more stuff. And I should say these resources are really um, specifically meant for New York City residents, although Mm -hmm. people who are outside of New York City will find a lot of information on there that's also applicable to them. And if you are a low-income New York City resident, you can also contact our financial justice hotline, which is open Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday afternoons from 12 to 2. The hotline number is 212-925-4929. And there's, you know, that information is there on our website as well. But, you know, I'll just say a little bit more about some of the resources So some of what our resources do is they describe what you might do if you're getting debt collection calls or letters and what your rights are under both state and federal laws. For example, there's a federal law, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, which has a lot of really important protections for people who may be experiencing debt collection activity. And when debt collectors, third-party debt collectors, so this doesn't apply to original creditors, unfortunately, but when third-party debt collectors violate this law, you can bring a lawsuit against them. And that's one of the things that our organization does is we, you know, sue debt collectors and other entities that are violating federal statutes like the FDCPA. Our our website also talks about what to do if you're um, dealing with a debt collection lawsuit. And one thing that I think is, you know, an example, it's something that's really important for people to know, and there's information about this on our website, is that if you are in court and being sued, it's the burden of the company that's suing you to prove that you actually owe the debt that they say that you owe. It's also their burden to prove that they're the rightful owners and the rightful entity to be suing you on the debt. Oftentimes, you know, people think, oh, gee, just because I'm getting sued, I must owe something. But it's important to know that it's actually the plaintiff's burden, the entity that's bringing the lawsuit. It's their job to prove their case. And oftentimes, way more often than one might think, they don't have the information they need. They don't have the evidence. They don't have the proof. And so the short story is by just showing up to court and defending yourself you really have a pretty decent chance of winning, which is good news, I think. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I don't know, a pretty basic legal concept that when somebody sues you and you don't answer, they can file for a default against you and then get a default judgment against you, which means that you can lose a court case just by not fighting it, which is how a lot of, you know, a lot of these debt collectors do get judgments. Because the people that they are suing don't think it's worth fighting or don't have the money to hire a lawyer. You need a lawyer. 
look for one pro bono, like your state's bar association might have a lawyer referral service or might have a pro bono office. Everybody, everybody should get a lawyer. Well, no, not everybody should get a lawyer, but yeah, if you're being sued, then you should definitely talk to a lawyer. And there are ways uh, that you can try and get one who will work for you pro bono. Let's see. So that, that whole concept that you were talking about, you've, that's challenging assignments, right? Yeah, I was going to, that's exactly right. And I know that's maybe coming up. We're going to talk about that some more. I did just want to put one, one sort of caveat in terms of the lawyer thing, which is that definitely if you're sued, answer the lawsuit, avoid Mm -hmm. a default judgment. And yes, seeking legal advice is really an important thing to do. But, you know, unfortunately, the fact of the matter is the vast majority of people who are getting sued in civil court, who are in, in, um, you know, who are getting sued by debt collectors and creditors in civil court don't have attorneys representing them and are Mm -hmm. still, there's a lot of free resources out there and there's a lot of ways to fight these lawsuits on your own using the free legal resources that are out there. So just, just to note that, that even if you don't have somebody, a lawyer representing you in court, you still have a really strong shot at winning, especially if you can access those resources that are available. Especially if you're in, you know, a a rural area or in a less progressive city um, or region, you know, it's, it might be much more difficult to access those free legal services. But like, at the end of the day, there are basic components of the law that are still fundamentally the same. And you can win if uh, you listen to what Ann Larson is about to tell you. (laughs) Yeah, and so why don't you tell us a little bit about challenging assignments? Sure, sure, be happy to. Um, I just want to start out by by saying, you know, the solution to mass indebtedness. Right, we started the episode talking about these sort of structural problems. So we really, we really do need structural solutions, and I know we're going to talk about that later in the episode. I mean, the the real solution here is is collective action you know, solidarity, mass action, socialism, grassroots. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's, but I, so I want to just frame the conversation that way. But I, I also want to say it is critical that we talk about what individuals can do in the meantime, while we organize. And I'm really glad that Eve brought up um, Chain of Assignment, New Economy Projects just does fabulous work, especially for New York City folks. And certainly, if you're being sued, you know, we, we really need to go on the offensive and we really can go on the offensive and we should go on the offensive as debtors and as working class folks. And that's really encouraging to me to hear that there are lots of things that we can do as individuals before you are sued, right? If your debt's gone to collection, if you've got a debt, any kind of debt from credit card debt, medical debt, any consumer loan, it's gone to collection, you're getting harassed. Before you've been sued, you can also go on the offensive and, and be aggressive and, and push back against these, you know, scumbags that are that are trying to collect from you. And uh, the Debt Collective is working on has a series of debt dispute tools that our members use, and they're on our website at debtcollective.org. And this is for folks who are in debt, who are being collected on before lawsuits start happening. And as Eve mentioned, these collectors. These shit stains, these motherfuckers they do not have, they do not have paperwork. They call, they, they buy spreadsheets, they buy Excel spreadsheets full of names, people, they know your name, they might know your phone number, your email, your address, they kind of know how much you owe, how much you supposedly owe, but that's it. They don't have the paperwork. This happens in the mortgage industry as well. It happens all across, you know, the debt landscape. If you, if, if we 
bother to dispute, bother to fight back and say, look, I need you to show me that you have the chain of assignment, that you can prove that you own the debt, that you have the right to collect on it. If more of us did that, we could simply stop a lot of these collectors in their tracks. So again, uh, debtcollective.org has a series of dispute tools that you can dispute any debt and collections before the lawsuits happen. You can dispute a wage garnishment if a collector from a student loan, if a federal government is garnishing your wages for a student loan. Uh, private student loans, there's a dispute tool there for that. To, if you see an error on your credit report, we can, we can dispute that. We should be pushing back against these folks and demanding that they, that they actually follow the law, which means providing the proper paperwork. And most of the time they can't do it. There was an article in the New York Times just a, a few years ago that where a reporter dug down into the credit card default a sort of sewer service industry and found that about 90% of those collectors in, credit card, in the credit card industry could not prove that they actually had the right to collect. So it's a massive, massive industry where, where these collectors are collecting from us when they just don't have the legal right to do so. And we should definitely um, fight back. And I think, you know, the great thing about dispute tools and for organizing and for, you know, trying to introduce broader policy changes is we can offer a service to folks, to working class folks, poor folks, say, look, I want to, you know, we should spread the news. I want to help people in my building or people in my workplace dispute all their credit card debt, dispute their medical debt. And meanwhile, I want to tell them that the solution is public goods, access to public services. And these are conversations we can have with folks while we're also offering a solution that solves a problem in the short term. And I think that's really important. Those two things going together going forward. Mm-hmm. Can I ask a, a quick question, kind of basic, but I think I I feel like there's so much helpful information here and but I think some of it comes with like a assumption of some basic knowledge and I just wanted to kind of ask the question like say someone's in debt and they know that their debt is real that it's valid and say they're they have like Sally Mae calling them on a regular basis what is that process after that what happens after that to folks because I know I myself and I have a bunch of friends that are just like, we're just going to keep ignoring it. And so like what happens once that is ignored and like can can someone just kind of like break down just like really quickly some of those steps afterwards? This is Eve. I'm happy to talk about that a bit. You know, typically what would happen is if you if a creditor, an original creditor, so whether it's Sally Mae or Capital One Bank, but the company that, you know, initially gave you the credit, gave you the loan, at some point, well, one generally one month after you miss a payment, they consider that the default, the moment of default. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an important moment, actually, because another really important way that people can sometimes um, fight against debt uh, collection lawsuits or even pre-lawsuit is something called the statute of limitations. And so that is a legal term, but it basically means that if a certain amount of time has passed from the last, from the date of default, they're no longer, that's a, that's a complete defense to basically having to pay it. So that's something to keep in mind. And after that, you know, default happens, that date of default, sometimes the company itself will continue to collect. Sometimes they have their own like in-house collection process that goes on there. Sometimes they'll hire like a debt collection agency to do the collection for them. And sometimes that's the point where they'll just, they'll sell it off at some point to a debt buyer. 
And then you have this, you know, whole debt buying industry that we talked about earlier in the episode um, and just now as well, you know, where these companies really don't have proper documentation and generally just, you know, they're they're coming after you for something that if if really forced to prove it in court, very often they can't. You know, after when you're dealing with a third party, what we call a third party debt collector, and I guess the legal jargon. So basically a debt collection agency, a debt buyer or a debt collection law firm, basically any company that's not the original creditor, the rights that you have as a consumer are are pretty expansive. And they include what Anne was talking about, sending these dispute letters, basically requiring that and and saying to the company, I want you to stop contacting me unless you can actually send proof that I owe the debt. And the kind of proof that they would have to have includes original signed contract agreements, you know, account statements that go back to a zero balance. They have to be able to show exactly to the penny how they're coming up with this figure, this amount that they say that you actually owe. And so, and then eventually, you know, at some point they could they could bring a lawsuit and they do, as we know. Something else that hasn't really come up that's another thing for people to be aware of is that a certain kinds of income are completely exempt from debt collection under federal and also under some state law. So if you receive, for example, any kinds of public benefits, social security benefits, or even like a pension, veterans benefits, food stamps, all those benefits are completely exempt and meaning that while they could even get a judgment against you, they cannot legally take those kinds of that kind of income from somebody forcibly unless that person gives it gives it to them. And actually, if you make minimum wage, your wages are basically exempt from debt collection as well. And if you make above minimum wage, there's only a certain percentage of your wages that are actually um, collectible, um, and it's a small percentage. And so, you know, it's it's not like if you owe a debt, they can just take everything from you. There are real limits and real protections on what they're actually able to do. Thank you so much. That was really helpful. Mm-hmm. So, Emma, I know that a lot of your research and work is in the area of bankruptcy. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the mechanisms of filing and the effect that it has on debt? Yeah, so uh, basically the two forms of bankruptcy available to most people like us is Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 bankruptcy. Chapter 7 is generally what people think of when they think of bankruptcy. Uh, you liquidate any unprotected assets that you have. You put together an expense plan that the court approves of, and then your debts are discharged. They get rid of them. The 2005 bankruptcy law, one of the many awful things that uh, George W. Bush did, has raised the standard for who can get Chapter 7. So increasingly, and this is something I prove in my article, increasingly more people are winding up in Chapter 13 bankruptcy, And Chapter 13 is basically a glorified payment plan. The main reason people do it is because you get the power of the courts behind your payment plan so the creditors don't play games with you. Uh, You get this thing called a stay, which basically stops those sort of, or it's supposed to stop those sorts of harassment and stuff from creditors. Uh, It's not great, though. Uh, It's very much a product of this idea of shame around having debt as a poor person. Mm -hmm. 
and it's about making bankruptcy a punishment rather than uh, a remedy. And we talked about earlier about how all this debt is a result in part of the social safety net, but it's also really important to me as a Marxist to point out that it's also because we have little regulations on production and our economy in general. And as Marx wrote, it's the means of production that are what drives these trends in consumption. You know, the reason why we have payday loans is a product of our economy rather than people being like, wow, I wish I had payday loans and some payday loan, you know, person, like, well, here you go. Uh, <laughs> here it is for you. No problem. <laughs> uh, uh, and the media and the right wing will blame working class people for being in debt when it's their colleagues and friends who are setting up these payday loans and stagnating mm. wages and so forth. And that's why we need to, at least as a short term solution, reclaim bankruptcy as its constitutionally backed purpose. There's Supreme Court precedent saying this of giving debtors a fresh start to their mm. financial lives. And it should be all debtors, because in this economic system, no individual irresponsibility of a working class person could possibly be a greater factor than this entire system that's been set up to reach off of them. Mm. And I think we are actually closer to this, to be positive, because this is the positive section, closer <laughs> to this than we've ever been. Because capitalism has created its own grave diggers by putting everyone in debt, you know, people are starting to realize, hey, bankruptcy and debt relief, they're not like, they don't make me a bad person. Like, these things shouldn't be restricted. I need this. I haven't done anything wrong. And there's renewed interest also. And I think, you know, this isn't a coincidence that both of these things are, are seeing resurgence in popularity. There's interest in democratic control of the economy through things like a federal jobs guarantee. I'm wondering how many people are going to change their Twitter names to capitalism's gravedigger now. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. So I fun. also wanted to jump in and just say here, again, like totally not to say that people should do this, but just that they should look into it for themselves if they find themselves in a lot of debt. But if you can get it, bankruptcy can be a better option than repayment strategies like the magical snowball or using debt management plans. Um, but I think some people may be afraid to look into it because of the stigma attached. Although, as you note, that's kind of going away as more and more people find themselves in that situation. Uh, but the truth is that you can begin rebuilding your credit pretty soon after declaring bankruptcy and you're even eligible to buy a house in just two years. So it's not going to ruin your life particularly if you've already you're already in crippling debt and you've been missing payments on things and your credit score is bad anyways. So and we know you can declare bankruptcy and even still be president. So it doesn't hold Yay. anyone back. <laughs> also, um, like as bad as the courts are, it's better to get the help of the courts than these companies that call themselves like credit relief companies or credit repair companies. Because they're a company. They're trying to make a profit off of you. And most of them are scams. You know, mm -hmm. they're not really trying to help you. And as bad as bankruptcy has become, it still is a thing that exists to help you. So, yes, definitely look into it if you're having problems with that. 
I think people might hear something like you can't buy a house for two years after you file for bankruptcy. You need to keep in mind that like, would you really be able to afford to buy a house while you're stuck under the repayment plans for crippling debt within two years anyway? So the prohibitions on qualifying for certain loans after you file for bankruptcy, I think you really need to, to take in, in context of like, well, would I be able to do that with the debt that I am in anyway. Cause like the idea of being able to buy a house in two years when you're stuck under hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical debt is, I don't know, that's kind of, that should be much more hopeful than it is. Oh, right. Anybody want to talk about Jubilees? Uh, there's literally nothing in this world that makes me more hopeful than the idea of a Jubilee. <laughs> uh, sure. I can, I can do that. This is Anne again. I also am really excited about concept of Jubilees. Um, and the, it really is an idea that goes back to the Old Testament. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, every 49th year uh, was known as the year of the Jubilee. And people were free from all debt and servitude. And sort of was, this was proclaimed. And so this was a very different idea of, you know, unlike modern notions of debtor distress, where going into debt or defaulting is seen as a result of like immorality or misfortune on the part of the borrower, this, this uh, Judeo-Christian tradition thought, thought that it was just the right thing to do. It was the duty of both creditors and debtors to sort of make things right every 49th year. And I think that that's really in, a really inspiring idea. And in fact, going back to student debt, which we were talking about earlier, which is uh, mostly, you know, two-thirds of student debt are held by women, there's a real possibility that we could have a jubilee of student debt. It's totally doable. It's actually on the table now in ways that it just hasn't been before, for example, there was a report written by the Levy Institute up at Bard College by Stephanie Kelton and her co-authors. She was Bernie Sanders' uh, advisor during the 2016 campaign. And the report's called The Macroeconomic Effects of Student Debt Cancellation. And the report really makes the argument that all the $1.5 trillion in student debt could simply be wiped away tomorrow. And the authors propose uh, not only that it should be done and that it could be done, but how. They give very detailed, a very detailed sort of how-to uh, manual on how to cancel this debt. And, you know, a lot of people would say, might say, oh, it would be bad for the economy or somehow we'd have to pay it back in taxes or there would be inflation. Um, I'm sure that, you know, if we started talking about debt cancellation, we would hear all of this. But these authors actually dismiss all of that. They find that just outright canceling all of this debt would actually have positive macroeconomic uh, benefits. Big surprise when we have more money, we spend it. It would raise average households' net worth, give us more disposable income, drive new consumption. They said uh, in their report, we find that debt cancellation lifts GDP, decreases the average unemployment rate, and results in little inflationary pressure over the 10-year horizon of our simulations. So really, there is just simply no reason for 40 million people to have $1.5 trillion of student debt hanging over them. We can just get rid of it tomorrow. And I think it's really on the table, as I said, in a way that hasn't been before. This is part of what I was saying before. There are things we can do as individuals, asserting our rights, demanding paperwork. And then there are things that we need to organize for as a collective. And this is one of them. There's a roadmap now to get it done, and it just we have to get organized and demand it. That's awesome. Yeah, we should definitely link to that um, piece where they kind of outline everything that needs to be done in order to make that happen. And I, God, I would love to organize towards that because that's 
it's so exciting to think about not having student debt. Wow. (laughs) I was going to say on the topic of, um, you know, canceling debt, I just wanted to sort of mention this really groundbreaking lawsuit that New Economy Project and our allies together brought back in 2015. This was a class action lawsuit called Sykes v. Mel Harris and Associates that achieved this groundbreaking $59 million settlement. And the lawsuit, it charged a network of debt collectors with civil racketeering, deceptive practices, and violations of federal law. And under the settlement, not only did class members get tens of millions of dollars in monetary relief, but it also resulted in the cancellation of 170,000 debt collection default judgments. Um, Those judgments were vacated And the debts were transferred to Rolling Jubilee, which was created by our friends at Debt Collective and Mm. forgiven. And so just like a really cool, you know, example of how litigation, the litigation context, this is also possible. My organization, we actually, one of our forms of advocacy at New Economy Project is um, shareholder advocacy. And just last week, we went to a meeting of Encore Capital, which is one of the largest, if not the largest, debt collection player. And among other things, we we went to them, we brought them a story about one of our hotline callers who they had, you know, brought a collection lawsuit against and sued. And one of these examples of somebody just finding out years later that they were sued on something and had no idea what the underlying debt even was, but we also demanded and are continuing to push them on this, that they also go ahead and vacate all these default judgments that they got without the proper underlying legally sufficient documents that they needed. And so, you know, I think the Jubilee idea is so cool. And I think that there's opportunities to push for this kind of thing, you know, in the policy context and in the courts as well. Awesome. That's so great. Does anybody have like anything else that they want to throw in before we wrap up today? Yeah, well, I'll make a plug um, for the website. New Economy Project's website is neweconomynyc.org. And in addition to the great Know Your Rights resources that we talked about earlier, you can find information there about our campaigns, including the community equity agenda for New York. We also have a really cool new campaign to create a public bank for New York City. Um, Mm. We have a campaign around making New York City a hub for cooperative economics. And we're also involved in a big campaign citywide again. Um, supporting community land trusts and other kinds of community controlled land and housing. And, you know, our model, really similar to what Anne was saying earlier, is about not just providing the resources and legal assistance for individual people, but really thinking about how we can come together and take collective action to have a new and different economic system that is not exploitative and, you know, is not based on these predatory practices, but really lifts people up and allows people to to live and to thrive in their communities. Awesome. I just really wanted to quickly plug for everyone in, uh, especially people in Brooklyn, uh, please check out Julia Salazar. She's a brilliant socialist feminist and member of the Democratic Socialist of America, running for state Senate here in New York. 
the primary is September 4th. Her platform includes so many of the things that we've been talking about that would reduce our need to go into debt, like single-payer health care and free tuition through CUNY and SUNY for colleges and uh, universal rent control. Um, so, yeah, please check uh, her campaign out. And this is Ann Larson again. I'll just add that folks folks should go on debtcollective.org, check out our dispute tools, dispute every debt. That's our motto. We'd love to have you share them with your friends and neighbors. They are great resources and also really opens a conversation that can uh, include talking about the broader solutions, broader policies that we need, free, free access to public goods and services. Um, we're going to be organizing there on a new platform that will launch just in a couple of weeks. So we're really excited about that. And we're also participating in the public banking campaign that Eve mentioned. I'm also involved in the debt and finance working group in DSA in New York City. And folks who are in New York and interested in connecting with us can uh, find us on social media or just send an email to debtors at socialists.nyc. Yes. Yay. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show. We did it. Thanks to all of our super intelligent guests. Kind of blowing my mind on the whole issue. I'm like, hold up. We need to rewind and like break this down for little old Laura here because... I'm just like, what are we talking about? No, it's good. It was so good. So good. Thank you guys so much. Yes. Um, as always, you can holler at your girls on holler. Insta, Twitter, <laughs> Facebook. We're not on YouTube yet. I know. Like, next thing you know, we're coming out with some vlogs. No. Uh yeah. We have a live show coming up. So excited. Tickets are on sale. It's August 11th at Star Bar. You can go to seasonofthebee.com. Hit that website. Hit up that website. Tickets are on sale there. It's $15 now. It's $20 at the door. So get your ticks. Get them. It's going to be a really good time. We're going to have a DJ and a dance party afterwards. So the whole thing is just going to be amazing. And I don't want to brag, but like... I've been known to get down on the dance floor and like I I right now like I like let it be known that I'm ready for dance offs. Oh, she's putting that out there. (laughs) I'm ready to clap arrhythmically and enthusiastically while you participate in your dance off. That's what I'm ready to do. Yes, I'm I I'm ready for it. That's going to be really great. We also have merch up on the website. Um, We've got a bunch of cool t-shirts and stuff you guys should check out. Absolutely. Uh, Rate. Listen, rate, review on iTunes. We love that. And the reviews are just like so sweet. They make me cry. So keep that up. Yes. Also, if you've got some extra dollars that you'd like to support some socialist women in their socialist women endeavors you can uh, slide us your money on patreon yeah do it do it yay all right (laughs) love you that's great love you too bye bye bye
bitch. <laughs>